On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Rob Coons about Aristotelianism, Thomism, and their relationship to Christianity. So we cover topics like just what it does it mean to be an Aristotelian or a Thomist? Are these terms synonymous? Do they overlap? How do they differ? How do they relate to Christianity in general? And must Christianity have these sets of doctrines to remain orthodox? And of course, we talk about other types of things like terms, such as act and potency, form and matter, hylomorphism, all these big words that we may not understand fully. So I think this is a wonderful introduction into Christian Aristotelianism and Thomism, and you're really going to enjoy it. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or questions for the show in general, hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can find us on our, e- our new website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that hopes to foster thinking uh, by creating an intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And today, we are, I'm really honored to introduce you all to uh, Dr. Rob Coons, who I believe is, I don't know what your official title is, if it's professor of philosophy or, right. yeah. or more than that, um, yeah. over at the University of Texas. And really looking forward to talking to him because he's done a lot of interesting and helpful work in the uh, Thomistic Aristotelian realms. And at least in my context, I've seen a revival almost of Aristotelianism and Thomism. And sometimes I think um, there's a lot of people in my context who latch onto these things and don't really know all of what they actually mean and all of the implications and all that stuff. So yeah. I'm looking forward to understanding more about that from you. Yeah. So Dr. Coons, before we get into the topic, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself uh, to, for those listeners who may not know who you are to have a little context and then what made you interested in studying Aristotelianism, Thomism, and things like that. Great. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Jordan. So I'm uh, teaching at the University of Texas at Austin, as you said. Been there for 33 years. I uh, had my, got my PhD at uh, UCLA uh, back in the in the mid 80s. And so my training was really in fairly typical uh, what we would call analytic philosophy. Uh, big emphasis uh, back then, especially on logic and philosophy of language, and that sort of thing. So I've actually come around to these interests relatively late in my career, um, the last uh, maybe 15 years or so of a, of a uh, 35, 40 year uh, involvement in philosophy. Uh, you know, when I was doing graduate school, I think there was, a, there was a lot of respect for Aristotle, but the thought was that he was just outdated. And um, you know, it, was, it was interesting maybe from the antiquarian point of view, but not from the, from the contemporary point of view. Uh, and this has gradually changed for me over the years. I remember there was a conference I, I organized. Um, this was probably in the mid or early 90s on uh, philosophy and, and, and evangelization or evangelism. And uh, a friend there uh, talked to me about was, We were talking about this and he said, you know, um, Aristotle was really important as a kind of preparation for the gospel. Uh, if it hadn't been for Aristotle, you know, you wouldn't have had the kind of reception that the gospel had in that, those early centuries. Well, that's a really interesting idea. Uh, so I started, you know, thinking about that, um, and um, you know, I, I was thinking too about well, I've been reading people like um, Alistair McIntyre and others who who make the point that that there was this huge change that happened in the early modern period when Aristotle was thrown out, and he talks about you know the implications of that for 
uh, moral philosophy and that sort of thing. Uh, and I remember my teacher, Bob Adams at UCLA, used to say, hey, Aristotle is great, but unfortunately science just you know passed him by and <laughs> we had to move on. And in a way, McIntyre says the same thing after Virtue. He says, oh, if only we could get back to this metaphysical biology, things would be great, but we can't. And so, um, so anyways, it's really in the last, uh, like I say, 15 years where I've, I've been, um, there's been, you know, it's not just me, there's, there's a pretty widespread rev revival of interest in Aristotle uh, and in Thomism uh, within uh, philosophy, including analytic philosophers. And so I've gotten caught up in that and have tried to contribute to it in those ways. Cool. Uh, well, Dr. Coons, I guess we can just begin with the labels, Aristotelianism and, and Thomism. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe tell us, are those just synonyms or if they're not, how much overlap is there between those two labels? Um, just walk us through how to understand those two words. Yeah, great. So they're definitely not synonyms, but uh, overlap, I think, is, is the right term here. Um, so Aristotelianism you know, refers to this extremely long-standing tradition, or you might call it a research program in philosophy that uh, initiated by Aristotle, uh, but that has been carried on, you know, obviously in his own lyceum in the, in the ancient period, picks up, get picked up by the Neoplatonists. Uh, then, of course, in the scholastic period, uh, the, the Muslim philosophers like Avicenna and Ibn Rushd uh, make big contributions, Thomas Aquinas, very important. And then in the, uh, uh, you know, I, I took, Aristotelianism never really drops out. There's significant Aristotelians at every period. I mean, if you read the standard mm -hmm. history, you know, uh, Descartes comes along and it's all over. But in fact, that's not the case. Um, so, um, so it's, it's, as I say, it's, it's had its waxing and waning, but it's, uh, I think it's definitely mm -hmm. waxing now. Now, Thomism is, you know, I would say itself a kind of mixture of two things, right? Because Thomas is, is primarily a theologian, but, but also a philosopher. And so Thomism really embraces both of those, both a particular approach to Aristotle and a particular approach to Christian theology. And of course, they're concordant to us. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas wouldn't have been doing both of them. Uh, but we do have to distinguish those. And so you know, there are many Aristotelians who, who would think that uh, Thomas's version of Aristotle isn't quite right or isn't the best version. Um, and so that, that's why you can't equate the two. There's a certain prejudice I find among some folks who do ancient philosophy that the Aquinas just must have been wrong about most everything in, in <laughs> Aristotle. And I'm, I'm very much on the other side here. I think, no, I think actually Aquinas' interpretations of Aristotle are both very plausible as, as interpretations and also uh, charting for us the right course to take in, in developing Aristotle for the future. So I'm very much a Thomistic Aristotelian or an Aristotelian Thomist, uh, mm. whatever you want to uh, think of that. Um, yeah, so I guess that, that maybe helps uh, sort those things out. Um, yeah, it does. So... How does Aristotelianism and Thomism then relate to Christianity and the fundamental doctrines of the faith? So I guess when we think of what it means to be an Orthodox Christian, does Aristotelianism and Thomism play into that? Are they things that if we want to affirm, say, the Nicene uh, Creed, that we must affirm parts of Aristotelianism or, or parts of Thomism? Uh, what, how does that relate? Yeah, so it's, it's a little more complicated maybe than that. Um, I'll, I'll mention a, a quote that I like uh, by uh, G.K. Chesterton in his uh, book on St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, one, I think it's one of the early chapters. He says that Aquinas made Christendom more Christian by making it more Aristotelian. And, you know, to, to understand what that means is Chesterton's arguing that there was a tendency in, in early Christianity to become, it might say, too platonic. 
uh, and to put uh, too much emphasis on the purely intellectual and Michael spiritual side of the faith and thereby to lose some of that incarnational and sacramental dimension of, of, of mm -hmm. Christianity. And since Aristotle comes along and says, well, wait a minute, you know, the senses don't just deceive you. The senses are really important as sources of knowledge. And your body isn't just a prison that your soul has to escape. Uh, you are a soul body synthesis of a certain kind. Uh, Chesterton argues, that, look, that actually is very concordant with Christian, Christian themes of the incarnation. Right? I mean, mm -hmm. Jesus didn't sort of imprison his soul in some uh, body. He actually became human being and by, and by doing that ennobled and um, affirmed, you know, the dignity of, of, uh, of bodily life and of the, and of the senses. Um, real significant, I think, that Jesus uh, was a, a carpenter or a craftsman as well. So, you know, he didn't just uh, sit in an armchair thinking deep thoughts. He was, uh, he was involved in the, in, the, in the physical world in, in intimate ways. Um, so, yeah, so I think those themes of Aristotle fit really nicely with with Christianity. And there are lots of other things about Aristotle that, uh, I mean, he's got, yeah. you know, obviously a lot of the early Christians like Augustine immediately gravitated to Plato, understandably, right? Uh, because Plato does have this uh, view of um, a very high view of virtue, right? Uh, some moral virtue, something that's good in itself. And Plato's clearly a theist, right? But so is Aristotle, right? He's got all the same things as well. Plus he has a more, I think, uh, fully developed uh, affirmation of uh, of the kind of physical world, and I think that that uh, that attracts uh, a lot of Christians over the over the ages. Um, yeah, so that that makes me think about a question here for you. Uh, I've seen recently some people who want to say Aristotle is basically a Platonist, or um, I don't know what, what Ur, he's part of this Ur Platonist movement yes, where it's, there, it's just this mm -hmm. big broad thing. So, yeah. is that a fair representation of Aristotle or or not? Yeah, I think so. So, you know, there's, you know, there's a spectrum of, of views here. Uh, you know, in, in the classic painting by uh, Raphael, I guess, right, the School of Athens, uh, you have uh, Plato gazing up in the sky and Aristotle's, I don't know, poking at a rock or something, right? And it's kind of emphasizing the, the idea that they're polar opposites. And I think that's not right. And in fact, um, you know, despite what I was just saying about Chesterton, uh, I think Chesterton wasn't entirely fair to Plato, actually, or to Christian Platonists, uh, especially in the later work of Plato, there's already a development of a much more positive view of the body and of the senses than you would find in the early works. Um, mm -hmm. So in the, um, uh, even in the Republic or Symposium or some of the early works, there's a lot of, uh, the, you know, there's this, again, this body as, as a prison kind of theme. And by the time you get to the Sophists, Timaeus, the laws, you know, the later things in Plato, you're already moving towards Aristotle, I would say. And so Aristotle's kind of picking the, picking the baton up from Plato mm -hmm. at that point. Um, yeah, there's there's an awful lot of common ground between the two, actually. Got it. So I think you've already kind of hinted at this, but has modern science basically made Aristotelianism and Thomism irrelevant, or can we still use you know an Aristotelian understanding of causation and things like that um, in the way we understand the world, or is this something that we just need to you know abandon as as a way forward and just you know maybe study it as just part of ancient history? Yeah. Right. So to me, this is this is like the crucial question. I said, so, so I'm glad you raised that. Um, you know, if if indeed science had made all of Aristotle's, let's say, biology and anthropology um, obsolete, then we'd be in a position where we would be just sort of living among the ruins and kind of picking up bits and pieces that we could we could maintain. And that was sort of that again. That was Alistair McIntyre's attitude, I think, when he wrote Anthropology. Sort of, 
well, you know, the thing's been destroyed, but maybe we can patch together some kind of quasi-Aristotelian thing. Uh, but then I think later, uh, McIntyre, when he writes uh, Dependent Rational Animals, he's starting to think, no, maybe this metaphysical biology, he calls it, is, is really viable. So that's, that's my view. My view is that um, if you look at the scientific revolution and then you take it up until like the ni- late 19th century, things look relatively grim for Aristotle, you might say. Uh, what, what I, I call it the Newton-Maxwell sort of paradigm, where you've got gravity and electromagnetism, there's these little particles, and that's pretty much all of reality, right? Uh, you have a bunch of little particles that are governed by these mathematical laws, and everything else is just uh, stamp collecting, as uh, Rutherford, I think, put it, right? So it's just, you know, the biology and psychology is one of real sciences anymore, right? The real science is all about the, the particles, the microphysicalism. Now, of course, even there, and I think Ed Fazer's made this point, uh, even there, you could say there, 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 something Aristotelian was never completely abandoned. I mean, the early, the early people like Descartes and Galileo hoped that they could uh, posit a world in which, in which there was this completely nondescript uniform matter that moves around according to a very simple mathematical law. And uh, gravity was immediately a problem, right, for that. And electromagnetism even more so, right, because now it looks as though you have to attribute natures to these little particles to enable them to have mass and charge so that they can attract and repel each other. So already there's room for a certain amount of Aristotelianism there, but it would be a very truncated Aristotelianism, right? Because Aristotle is interested not just in the forms of, of uh, very small physical things, but also forms of human beings, animals, plants, and so on. And so that, again, that kind of late 19th century reductionistic materialistic picture, very un friendly, inhospitable territory for Aristotle, I think. But then I, I think the quantum revolution has completely changed things. And this is where I think most scientists and most philosophers have not figured that out yet. They're still kind of groping around in the dark. But I think it's increasingly clear, actually, that, that it's, the quantum revolution was actually a counter-revolution. It takes us back, uh, in many ways, to, to a scholastic picture. And I'll, I'll mention sort of three ways. Um, one is the so-called measurement problem, right? Because what quantum revolution says is, what quantum theory says is that uh, when we study these tiny things, all we can really say is how will they interact with us or if the measurement instruments in, in under certain conditions. This is called the measurement problem. So it means that you have to treat the observer and the instruments of the observer, the macroscopic instruments, the chemical and thermodynamically described things, uh, as first-class citizens of your ontology now. Uh, you can't say that the, the world is consists entirely of microphysical stuff because the microphysical stuff is radically incomplete now. It doesn't really have any nature of itself. It just points to what, how these things will interact with each other in a, in a laboratory setting. Um, second thing is, is, the, is the holism that you see with quantum theory. So in, in the Newton-Maxwell kind of picture, all you have to do is figure out where the really little things are and where they're located in space and how they're moving. And that's the whole story. Whereas with quantum world, uh, those little things are always parts of larger holes. And there are properties of the holes that can't be reduced to the properties of the parts and their relations to each other. And again, that's very Aristotelian sort of sounding picture. Third really important thing, there's actually four altogether. Third important thing is the reification or the, um, uh, well, I just say reification of potentiality. So in, in the Newton-Maxwell kind of world, all you have to do is describe the actual world. Where are the particles and how are they moving? Now, you can talk about possibilities if you want to, but those are just mental constructs. 
They're just ways of, our ways of thinking about how things might go when in fact it didn't go that way. In the quantum theory, you have to describe all the possible ways in which the particle could move. And that is part of the basic reality. You can't, you can't describe what's going to happen without taking into account potentiality as a real feature of the world. And that is crucially Aristotelian. That, that moves us back into the realm of powers and dispositions and possibilities as a crucial part of, of reality. And then finally, there's, there's the role of teleology, which, um, uh, I mean, the, the, the dynamics of quantum mechanics, very different from the dynamics of Newton's theory. You don't really have forces pushing and pulling things anymore. Instead, you have systems that move through the space of possibilities in such a way as to minimize action in certain ways. And, and I think Leibniz already recognized that there's something teleological about that kind of language. It's as though the system is, is finding the best way to evolve at each point in time. A uh, very different picture from, again, Newton's push me, pull you kind of a universe. Mm -hmm. So all of those, uh, and there's actually several others, all those aspects of quantum theory are actually pulling us back towards this older paradigm. No, I, am I correct in saying that 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 is a what view you've just laid out about maybe a I forget what word you use, but basically you know going back to a counter reformation maybe is what you said counter revolution counter revolution mm -hmm. reformation yeah. you can see where my yeah, mind stays at <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah so is that a minority view like are you are you yeah. in the vast minority of, among the scholars right now on on how they th see things okay okay yes that's definitely a minority view but. Um, I've got a lot of really bright people uh, working on this, so I think it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's, it's the wave of the future in my, my opinion. <laughs> yeah. So help me think through, I know we've had a guest on in the past who we were talking a little bit about Aristotelian causes and the laws of nature, and he and I think his argument was basically the four Aristotelian causes just simply aren't causes, and you don't need them if you have the laws of nature. Hmm. So do I have to, I mean, can I, and even nature's just in general, we don't need nature's if we have the laws right. of nature. Right. Um, can I mash them up together and keep them both? Or, or is it really a one-way street where I have to say I pick nature's or I pick laws of nature or something like that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think for the most part, you're going to want to pick and choose one or the other um, because otherwise it's a bit redundant. Um, so either you're going to think that things are in themselves sort of inert and they just sort of sit there and then the laws of nature come along and push them around according to certain patterns or you're going to think that no things have dynamic natures right that cause them to act and react in certain ways and the laws of nature are just sort of summaries of how things of various kinds will do that over time mm -hmm. now there may be some room on the Aristotelian picture for certain laws of nature as uh, maybe global constraints on the whole cosmos let's say but for the most part, the causal laws of nature will end up being just encoded in the natures of things themselves. Mm. There's, a, there's actually been a big movement, I think, in analytic philosophy uh, away from uh, laws of nature, actually. Um, I mean, well, there was, a, there was a movement towards them, and then they moved back away again. Um, so for a long time, you know, there, there was a, a Humean or Neo-Humean picture in which the laws of nature are just regularities. Uh, that we that we used to describe things, 
And the difficulty with that is that we use the laws of nature, not just to describe nature, but to explain things and to predict things and manipulate things. And so that they must have a kind of prescriptive force to them. They must be prior somehow to the instances. Mm -hmm. And the neo-humans really can't explain that. And so there was a movement in the 70s by um, Michael Tooley, uh, David Armstrong, and Fred Dretzky to sort of reify the laws of nature. So, okay, the laws of nature are really there. There's some kind of mysterious relation between properties that constitutes the reality of the law of nature. But then there was a pushback uh, by people like um, Bosman Frossen, who said, it's really mysterious how these facts about laws of nature up here in the Platonic heaven translate down into actual patterns in the world of particulars. I mean, what's going on there? And it looks as though, peculiarly, it's as if laws of nature on this picture have some special power to make particulars behave accordingly. And once you start realizing that, you think, well, wait a minute, if we're going to have powers in our picture anyway, why not just give the water the power to freeze or something? Right? Why bring in the law of nature as some peculiar entity that has some weird power? Let's just yeah. bring the powers down to earth, so to speak. And so this is why there's been a revival of what people call powers ontology in yeah. analytic metaphysics, which isn't, ex not everybody who does it is Aristotelian, but it's definitely moving in Aristotle's direction. And a lot of us are both powers ontologists and Aristotelians. So. Yeah, no, that's helpful. So <laughs> I want to think a little bit about some of the important terms that are embedded in these views yeah. that are often used for theological purposes. So I see a lot of terminology around act and potency and God is pure act, form and matter and hylomorphism. So okay. Maybe we just start with act and potency yes. and God is pure act. Can you walk me through what that means? Okay. And is that, I mean, is there just a one solidified meaning of this is truly what it means or does it vary from interpreter to interpreter? Right. Good question. So I would say that, yeah, I think it makes sense to start with act and potency and uh, it might be helpful just to use people in, in modern times tend to use words like actuality and potentiality. Uh, mm -hmm. Those are just synonyms of active potency. And, you know, the nice thing about active potency is it's really short. <laughs> you don't have to keep saying actuality yeah. all the time. <laughs> uh, but but uh, essentially those synonyms. And I, I take these notions to be really common sense notions. So this is a case where Aristotle is just picking something up that's part of our basic human machinery, so to speak, and, and deploying it in, in philosophy in various ways. As you'll see, when I get to matter and form, I think that's a very different case. But active potency, I think, are fairly familiar uh, notions to all of us. Act just refers to um, the way things are, so to speak, uh, most fully, most uh, in their most realized kind of way, right? So, so I, um, you know, I can sort of speak German, right? But I'm not speaking German right now. So my my German speaking um, power is not actualized at the moment. It's not an act. It's merely in potency. That seems like a pretty reasonable notion. Uh, I don't I don't really speak Spanish at all, but I might learn how to speak Spanish. So there I've got a kind of second order potency. Right? I've got a potentiality to learn how to be able to speak Spanish so that I could then act, uh, actually put it into practice. So at that point, you get you get three levels, right? Um, the uh, first act, second act, first potency, second potency, and so on. Um, so it's it, a fairly familiar notion. So um, now in... In Aristotle, it's pretty clear that there are actually two kinds of potentiality or potency. There's active and passive. So an active potency is, is a power or a disposition I have to act upon other things or other people in certain ways. Right? So 
if uh, if I've got a colleague who finds me really irritating, I've got the active potency to irritate him, right? <laughs> not come in and say things uh, that uh, causes him to react in a certain way. And that's an active potency on my part. He, on the other hand, is a passive potency of being irritated, right? Uh, he's the sort of person who reacts in certain ways, and that's a passive potency. So when we talk about God being pure act, uh, I think that what the tradition means that he, he's a being without any, any passive potency, right? That is, he doesn't, he isn't affected by other things, but he does have, in fact, infinite active potency. He has the potency to affect other things in any way that he chooses whatsoever. Um, so that I think that's the idea there. And of course, um, it, it's significant because your passive potency is sort of intrinsic to you in a way that your that your active potency isn't. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that is, my passive potency is is has something to do with the way that I'm constituted, such that I can change or be affected by other things. Whereas I have active potency, that doesn't require any sort of intrinsic modification or change in me at all. Um, in fact, uh, I mean, Aristotle thought, for instance, that the uh, the lowest well, that all of the celestial spheres lack any kind of passive potency. And so the lowest mm -hmm. one that's right above the atmosphere, it's not affected by the atmosphere at all. It just keeps rotating. But it has active potency. It churns up the atmosphere underneath it, right, without being affected by it at all. So Aristotle, you know, would agree with Newton up to a point that every action has an equal and opposite reaction, but not always. Sometimes things have actions with no reaction whatsoever, and that's where you have active potency without the corresponding sort of passive potency. And that's the idea of God for the extreme extreme case of that, right? He he affects everything else without being affected himself in any way. Yeah. Do you, are there any like contemporary analogs to to these concepts, or has it just retained truly act and potency has been the terminology that's been used throughout time? And if you agree with it, then you use that type of terminology, and if you don't, then you disagree with it. Yeah, um, you know, as I said, you know, modern science up until the quantum revolution had had really sidelined potency in lots of ways. Okay. Uh, so all you needed to do was just describe the actual state of the universe and how it will evolve in the future, and you've got everything, right? You don't have to worry about potency anymore. The quantum revolution says, no, you have to describe things in terms of potency because the, the quantum wave is a distribution of prob probabilities over a set of potentialities, so to speak. And so it gets mm -hmm. elevated to first-class first status. Uh, it was, I think, uh, let's see, Heisenberg, I think. Yeah, who in physics and philosophy, who was the first one to recognize this? He said, "Wait, this is this is Aristotelian potentia uh, back in our in our physical theory," uh, and I think probably there's some grudging recognition of that, but it's not uh, important. So it isn't, isn't fully appreciated. So two two other important terms are form and matter. So I guess if you can walk us through that, then we can maybe move into holomorphism. But we need to get those in place first. So well, um, yeah, holomorphism just refers to matter and form. So you yeah. Have to get yeah. <laughs> highly, highly is matter, morphism, morphe is form. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So um, here, I and the, here, there's much more variation in interpretation, uh, and, and, and probably always has been a lot of fights about the nature of matter and form, both. Uh, and and just to start out with, I mean, is our matter and form are these concepts that are sort of common sense concepts that Aristotle just picking up, or are they? something like theoretical posits, like gravity or quarks or something like that. Uh, in my view, they're more like the latter. They're more like theoretical posits that he that he uh, introduces in order to explain things uh, metaphysically in certain ways. And so if that's true, 
then it's not going to be really easy for me to explain, you know, what form is any more than I could sort of explain to you what a quark is, right, in, the, in, a, in, a, in a maybe five-minute conversation, because I'll have to say, well, here's the role that it plays within this larger theory in order to explain these things. Um, I mean, one thing I could say that might be helpful is I think of Aristotle's forms as immanentized platonic ideas, roughly. So if you have any idea what a platonic idea is, uh, what, what Aristotle does is he takes them down from platonic heaven and puts them into particular things. And in the process, they become many. So, uh, so there isn't just a single form of humanity. Each of the three of us have our own form of humanity. Uh, and then that's where the matter comes in, in my view. I mean, this, is, this, is, this is the Kuhnsian interpretation here. So again, there are many interpretations. But, but and it's roughly, I think, a Thomistic interpretation, which is that there's a, there's a thing called prime matter, which is sort of pure matter. And uh, it has really no nature of its of its own. Uh, it, it's completely parasitic on form to have any kind of nature. But what it does do is is it individuates. That is, it it explains why the human form is is multiple instead of just one. Right? Why are there three forms here instead of just one? Because each of us have our parcel of prime matter that's doing that individuating work. Um, my form and Jordan's form our human forms would be identical if our prime matter were identical. The prime matter is the explanation of the multiplicity, right? And that would be identicalness right, is what sort of unifies all of the human forms in the world into a, into a kind of family of forms, a, a species of forms, so to speak. So that's, that's Aristotle's way of explaining why you find similarity in the world. Why, why are there many things that are similar to each other? It's because they have these forms which would be all one, except for the action of prime matter that, that particularizes them or, or individualizes them in, in the way that we see around us. So that's where prime matter, again, it's, it's not something you're going to find in the laboratory, right? It's doing a particular kind of metaphysical job here, which is to explain metaphysically why there can be multiple human beings, all with the same form in some sense, but different forms in another sense, right? Uh, they're, they're in themselves one, but but through the matter of many. That's, that's the picture. Yeah. So then how is it that we all have individual souls? Uh, if my soul is part of what form is or is what the form is for me as a human um, and my body is part of the matter, it seems like I everybody would have the same soul. <laughs> right. You know, or... well, this, is a, this is a worry, of course. This is, this is exactly Averroes' view uh, in the uh, Middle Ages. Uh, Muslim philosopher who thought there was just a single human form that we all shared. Uh, and so Aquinas, of course, argues against that and wants to say that, uh, that, that my human form is my soul. And so since um, through my matter, your matter, we have different forms. We therefore also have different souls. Now, the tricky part, of course, is well, what happens when we die? Right, and the soul is separated from the matter. Why don't they, at that point, just re-emerge uh, back into a single into a single soul or something like that? Uh, so that's that's a hard question. <laughs> uh, I think roughly the idea is that um, once this, well, because my form has been associated with matter, that is enough to ground its sort of eternal distinctness from your soul because your soul has been associated with different matter at the same time. And so even when our two souls become immaterialized, so to speak, uh, they will continue to be distinct. And they'll continue to have distinct accidents. Uh, that is, I can have thoughts that you don't have or, or feelings that you don't have at the same time. 
Um, and of course, on 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 Aquinas's view and on Christian view, there's there's something radically incomplete about a human being that lacks a body. Uh, human beings are supposed to be embodied, and this is why it fits nicely with the idea of the resurrection. That uh, in order for us to really enjoy eternal life as we should, we should be we should do so in an embodied way. So, before Brandon, you ask something. I want to ask another thing on this. Uh, if I, you know, if I am an Aristotelian about what it means to be a human person, um, and I'm a Christian, and I affirm the intermediate state. How is it that I exist as f- a form without my matter during that period of time? Right. Yeah. Okay. Good. So, I mean, this this would just be standard Thomism. So, I don't really have anything much to add to this, but I'll, I'll just give you the standard Thomist answer. Um, so, um, animals, non-rational animals and plants can't do this. So, there there would be no way for their soul to exist apart from their body because the whole function. Of, uh, of, a, of an animal or, or vegetable soul is to regulate and unify and operationalize the body, the relevant body. Um, but human beings have an intellectual dimension to us. That is, we can uh, not only take in information through our senses, which is very bodily, we can also abstract from that uh, knowledge about universals. And so we can do science, we can do philosophy, we can do ethics and so on. We can sort of ask, what is justice? And, you know, uh, think of it as a universal. Those intellectual capacities we have don't depend in any way on the body, right? Those, those are capacities we share with the angels and with other non-material beings. And so because our souls have that extra capacity, they can go on doing that even after the body has, has, has decayed and died and then can be reunited with the body at some point. I mean, Aristotle himself seems to have been uncertain about what happens here, but he seems to at least open the door to the possibility that the human soul could go on existing without the body because of these extra uh, intellectual capacities that we have. Yeah. Hmm. I guess it's, yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. I don't want to, I don't want to go down that trail anymore. There's lots of problems there, of course. Um, (laughs) Well, I don't know if there are problems as much as they're just questions. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, what's important here for, for um, Aristotelians is that, you know, the, this human way of thinking is is connected to our senses in various ways and to the body in various ways, right? So although I said we have it in common with the angels, we do it in a very different way from the angels, at least in the body we do, because it's uh, it's going to be uh, dependent on the information that we're getting through the senses. Yeah, I guess it's just, you know, in my own empirical context, it seems like even this intellectual capacity, I have to have my brain in order to use that. Yeah. So I guess we're just making a, a metaphysical distinction saying, well, no, that, that may be what you ordinarily experience, but that's not always the case. Well, yeah, we, we might have to distinguish, too, between things like um, uh, thinking through uh, a chain of inferences, let's say, about universals. That, Aquinas thinks, does require the body. Because in order to do that, we actually have to instantiate our thoughts in something like little images, internal images, as we, mm. as we go through the thinking. And so, and so that's, that's why I think he's, his views are compatible with the view that, look, you know, you anesthetize the brain and you can't, you can't do that kind of inference. Uh, that wouldn't be surprising to Aquinas. But there's a, kind of, there's a state of understanding, right, which you, which you can acquire, that he thinks doesn't require those kind of images, right? 
Uh, and so and I think it would be really hard to empirically disprove that, right? How do you prove that somebody, let's say, in a coma with their brain is not operational, doesn't understand still uh, certain mm-hmm. things? Um, yeah. That's interesting. They, they seem like they could. Hmm. Yeah, I haven't thought about the coma example seems really interesting. I wonder, I have to try, think about that more myself. Brandon, you were going to ask something? Uh, well, it was actually similar to, your, similar to your question about the intermediate state. So, I mean, it, we can, I, I am interested. So the this holomorphism and this understanding of a of human person, would you say that that has been the dominant uh, view in the Christian tradition of what constitutes a human person or, cause it seems like now um, it's not. And um, that maybe people, the common just man on the street answer is that I just am my soul, I guess um, yeah. for, for Christians. Um, so w- why did yeah. that change? And, and um, maybe just help me understand if, if this view was the, the primary view throughout most of the tradition, why is it fallen out of favor? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, of course, early on you have the other picture. Um, the Pythagoreans and, and Plato, at least in his earlier works, does have this idea of the mind or the soul as some kind of separate entity that, that just goes its own way and, and maybe interacts with the body or is maybe housed in the body or something like that. But it, mm-hmm. it seems like it's a much weaker relation yeah. than the relation between uh, the soul and body in, in Aristotle. Although I like to say it this way, that the real difference is uh, between dualists like Plato and, and, and hylomorphists like Aristotle, it's not so much they have different views about the soul, it's they have different views about the body. That's really what changes. Uh, so Plato and uh, and also Descartes both have a view in which, you know, the physical world doesn't need anything like soul. It just does its stuff, you know, and then you have a bunch of souls that get added into the picture. Whereas in Aristotle's view, everything in the physical world has its form, Right. So soulishness is kind of built in all the way down through the, you know, all the inorganic kind of levels of things. And so the human body is just a special case of that. And my body just couldn't exist without my soul. The body is dependent on the soul, whereas it isn't really for the uh, dualist. Right? Uh, the, the soul goes away, the body's still there. Doesn't, you know, nothing, nothing's essentially changed with respect to the body. Whereas for Aristotle, no body, right? <laughs> a corpse is, is a human body only in a, a homominous sense. That is, it's... Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's only metaphor to call that a human being anymore, a human body anymore. Um, the thing that was there is just gone right? once the soul is gone. So that that's the difference. Now, now you, the question is, how, why did that change? Well, again, I think it has something to do with scientific revolution. It had to do with Descartes and others who came in and said, and again, they wanted to revolutionize our conception of matter. That was really what changed first. And once you change the conception of matter, then you had to say, well, what are we going to do about all this soul stuff? <laughs> and so then you had to posit a whole new domain of entities uh, or resurrect this notion from Pythagoras uh, of, of, of these independent little mind-like entities. And then you have, of course, the problem how to connect these things together. Um, so that's why I think, you know, and, I, I, and you're probably right, that's probably the majority view among, among Christians today is some version of dualism. Um, I'm hoping, you know, with the survival of Aristotle, that we can uh, reverse that and get the yeah. picture in mind. Um. So I want to, as I'm thinking about it now, I know a lot of our listeners, I think, are really, are either A, intrigued or want to learn more about these types of things, yeah. or maybe they just have no idea and they don't know where to start. Um, or maybe they're pretty well aware 
and know what we're talking about. I know you've got several resources. So I've got your, uh, the small book, the small intro to metaphysics book, okay. the fundamentals with you and Timothy Pickavance. I think I'm saying his last name correctly. Um, I think this is a really, really helpful introduction just to metaphysics in general. Mm-hmm. I know you've got your, what is it called? The Atlas of Reality or something. That one, that's right. Yeah. The the giant one. So I yeah. guess maybe the people who are more, you know, they know what they're doing. They, they head <laughs> over there. The yeah. people who have no idea where to start, they start with a small one. Um, yeah. What other resources would you say people should be looking to, to just understand um, Aristotelianism, Thomism, yeah. and then maybe why we should come back to a more Aristotelian view of contemporary science. Right. Okay, good. Um, I, I could recommend several books. Um, so Ed, Ed, Ed Baser, Edward Baser's recent book on Aristotle's Revenge. Um, I like that a lot. Um, and he's actually got quite a bit in there about the quantum theory uh, stuff. So some uh, referring to my work. So can't <laughs> for a full disclosure there. Uh, I think it's, I think it's good. I think it's good. I mean, he and I disagree maybe on time to some extent. He's more of a hardcore atheist than I am. But other than that, I like it a lot. Um, another sort of classic, well, this is a classic book now, 2007, uh, David Oderberg's Real Essentialism. is a good mm-hmm. introduction to polymorphism. Um, there's a more recent book by a friend of mine, Ross Inman, called mm-hmm. um, the, uh, Substances and the Fundamentality of the Familiar, I think. Uh, yeah, that's a... Sh- that's a nice, a nice uh, defense of uh, of a kind of hylomorphic picture of of uh, people and things and so on. Um, and then there was the book that um, uh, for a slightly more advanced here, especially those interested in the science angle. There's the book William Simpson, Nicholas Tay, and I edited a couple of years ago, uh, Neo Aristotelian Perspectives on Contemporary Science, uh, with that language I think it was, and it's a collection there of papers on. Uh, physics uh, and chemistry and biology to some extent, uh, in each case, kind of making the case that there's a relevance here of the Aristotelian paradigm. Um, one of my papers is, I think, available, uh, Thermal Substances with on Synthes in 2019, just last year. I think it's open access, so people can look at that. And that's a bit more advanced if you're interested in the uh, chemistry and thermodynamics side of things, which I think is, again, I haven't really talked about that, but that's another important thing that's happened is that we now have really good reason to think that chemistry does not reduce to physics. And hmm. that opens up more possibilities here for uh, Aristotelian forms at a, at, a, at a larger scale, let's say. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I know I love Ross Inman. He's, he's cool. He, we, hey. Me and Brandon live uh, probably within like, I don't know, 20 minutes of him. So yeah. hey. I'm able to hang out with him on occasion. And he's always thing, got... Yeah. Yeah, he's always got really good stuff. So anybody who's listening, I tell you, go check out Ross. I like Ross a lot. Um, what was I had a question here about one of these resources, um, and now it, it's completely gone. So, Brandon, did you have a thought? Well, I guess we can just, before we wrap up, um, just curious to know if, if, if you think there are any specific areas that you think um, are under-researched. Um, I know maybe you think – a lot of things are under research since, you're in, you're, <laughs> since you're in the minority, you want people to come around to the, from the dark side. But um, yeah, are there any specific areas that you think, uh, or maybe that you see research beginning to blossom uh, in particular areas that you think are going to be fruitful in the near future? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm encouraged by, by a number of people that are working in, in the physics area. Um, so William Simpson, 
good friend of mine. He's, he's got a PhD in both physics and philosophy. He's, he's written wow. several papers now uh, defending a hylomorphic interpretation of quantum mechanics and uh, pressing back against uh, some of the other other views pretty effectively. So I have you know, high hopes for, for his uh, his work. And uh, if there are any physicists out there that would like to pitch in, uh, we'd be glad to <laughs> have them uh, on our side. We've been talking recently with uh, George Ellis and Barbara Drossel, who are really eminent uh, physicists. Um, you may have heard of Ellis. He's, uh, you know, he's not quite Nobel Prize winner yet, but he's in that camp, um, co-opting things with Hawking and that sort of thing. And um, I mean, he doesn't he doesn't really know the Aristotelian background, but he's sort of reinvented it, I think, uh, with his concept of concept contextual emergence. And so I've been corresponding with him some, trying to get him to, you know, put it in a slightly more Aristotelian way or, or you know, uh, uh, root, root what he's doing in, in, in this metaphysical tradition. Uh, because I think it's, it's very concordant with what we're trying to do. Um, so, um, but there, there's lots of other areas that could be worked on too. Um, you know, I started out talking about McIntyre, and there's obviously connections here with an Aristotelian view and and the foundations of ethics, yeah. uh, kind of eudaimonistic ethics of uh, flip a foot and, and folks like that. And there's still a lot more work to be done on that. You know, how, how, how sort of in detail do you get moral theory out of um, sort of Aristotelian facts about the human form, human, human mm -hmm. essence? Um, and of course, there's work on philosophical theology that could be done in this, in this area. I mean, the whole debate about classical theism is a big, big topic these days. Yeah, uh, you know, that's the doctrine of simplicity, divine simplicity, which mm -hmm. we Aristotelians tend to emphasize a lot. Yeah, no, that, that, that's really helpful. I mean, I think that's how I got initially introduced into more Aristotelianism and Thomism and things was just through studying classical theism and understanding that, and, yeah. and all the debates that go on inside of that. Do you think? Uh, the the somewhat wane in classical theism somewhat coincided with just a rejection of Aristotelianism overall. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. It, it it's it's funny. It seems like a lot of these movements and thinkings kind of like follow each other mm -hmm. um, along when when things go down and things go up. So that's just really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Anyway, well, I think this has been really interesting and really helpful. So, Great. I mean. There's so much to, to uncover when it comes to this, and I think you've given us some really excellent resources to to get our hands on, to dig our teeth into. So I want to say thank you a ton for this. I think this is really tremendous helping us to understand it because I do see, in my own context anyway, a, a resurgence in wanting to understand what Aristotle said, what Thomas said, and, and what that means for Christian theology. Um, and we're trying to find like, Hey, who actually knows stuff about this? Because <laughs> at least in our own, in my evangelical context, I mean, if I went to ask most people, they'd say Aristotle, what, I don't know anything about him besides that he existed. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I think it was really helpful. Um, so well, thank you for coming. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. And I, I commend all of our listeners. I mean, this introductory text that that he that Dr. Coons co-authored, I think, is fantastic, uh, and I, I think it's really accessible, really easy read, and it really lays out the views really well. So, if anything, I tell you, go get this one because I think it's going to introduce you to a lot of the understanding, the debates, and all the different views and everything on it. So, well, check that, that out. Um, <laughs> check out. I know Dr. Coons has a website. I think, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. Rob and I net. perfect. Rob, RobCoons.net. He's got 
all of his papers and different things, like listing out all the stuff on there. So you can go in there and look and see, hey, this one looks interesting. I'm going to read that. Uh, I think he does a lot of really, really helpful, interesting work. Um, and I think you're going to benefit from it. So everybody who's been listening, we thank you for tuning in uh, to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.